0: This morning, I'd like to read from an article written by Michelle Sessoms, and she works for Freedom to Lead. So I'm going to read an essay in a couple of parts throughout our morning together. She writes, I'd like to introduce you to John. I've never met John personally, though I've benefited from his influence. Perhaps his story will influence you as well. John's life is a great example of one who embraced the new life in Christ, This new life was not something that was just born overnight, but rather involved a complicated journey, a journey that spanned several decades and brought him to the place of being able to touch many people through the gift of music. Although he had heard some stories from the Bible due to the faithfulness of his mother, by the time he was a teenager, John had given up any Christian convictions. A lot of this had to do with the hardness of his father, who was away during much of john's childhood to add to his experience john was only nine years old when his mother died perhaps his father was absent or i'm sorry because his father was absent and his mother was dead john was sent away to school until he was old enough to join his father in the business when his father retired john was left alone at 19 years of age and he found a mentor and learned the ways of this business Like many boys of his youth, John soon fell in love. As if as if his story didn't already have enough twists and turns, this was where John's life took the most dramatic turn. One day while visiting his new love interest, Mary, John was kidnapped. He was kidnapped by a gang of sailors and forced to serve in the British Royal Navy on board the Harwick. Michelle writes, You see, the reason I've never met John personally is mostly due to the fact that he was born in 1725. Bitter about life and toward Christianity because of his circumstances, John began his downward spiral into degradation. When he learned that the Harwick was preparing to embark on a five-year voyage around the world, he tried to desert. However, a few sailors spotted him, dragged him back to the ship, flogged him, and demoted him. He lost his status as an officer in training and was forced to travel around the globe. Without hope in the world, John even considered suicide. Nothing except an act of the Almighty God himself could intervene in John's life. Not caring about much of anything except being able to escape life aboard the British ship, eventually John reached the coast of Sierra Leone where he became the servant of a slave trader. His job was to capture African men and women, transport them abroad, and force them into slavery. What was ironic was that aboard this slave ship, John was also treated as a slave by his bosses. Over the years, he hopped from slave ship to slave ship and was enveloped by the darkness around him. This was undoubtedly the darkest period of his life. At this point, John was only 23 years old, and he was living the only life he knew how to live, and his life was on the balance then as if God was just waiting for the absolute right moment, he reached down his hand and grabbed John by the shirt tails. On this particular night, John happened upon a copy of the imitation of Christ, the message of which cut him straight to the heart. And that very night, a severe storm slammed the ship. Everyone on board almost sank to the watery grave below. Almost. At a different time, also at sea, John became ill with a violent fever and asked for mercy from God, from the God he had rejected years before, but somehow knew was still there. And in the midst of these storms, John came to the only possible conclusion that he was a sinner in need of forgiveness. John later said these events were the turning point in his life. He started going to church and when he and Mary got married, he promised her that he would live an upright life, and he also promised her that he would secure a respectable lifestyle. Old life, new life. With this new life in Christ, John was immediately transformed. Or was he? Earlier, Pastor Tom prayed that we would be protected or at least moved away from our slavery to sin and that is truly what's in us and jesus is addressing a crowd of jews and when we see this in our text in john 8 there's always some kind of distinguishing uh, feature as to who he's really talking to who's his audience as he's addressing these things and we have a bit of a clue here as we come to john 8 verse 31 we're going to spend just a couple minutes in this passage Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, that's a very important phrase for us to remember throughout this morning. This is what he says. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Don't we know that phrase? Used over and over and in so many different contexts. So here's Jesus offering them freedom Those that believed him and their response is, in verse 33, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you tell us that we will become free? So Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The bottom line is that sin is not a very popular topic. We can talk about sin culturally as long as we're talking about what people that aren't uh, doing the right thing society approves of are doing. We can say that people that are against certain popular stand uh, standpoints, they're guilty of sin, but we don't want to talk about the fact that we all are prone to sin or even as the scriptures would say that we were born in our sin. And the way that we commit sin, if you will, or the way that we are involved in sin is is one of two ways, and usually both. We either commit things that we shouldn't do, or we omit to do the things that we should be doing. Either way, the standard of the holiness of God, the purity of God, is what we continue to fall short of because we are draped in sin. The scripture would say that it's because it's not just because we um, we're called sinners because we've acted out on that sin and we've done some bad things or we haven't done some good things. We don't do the good things we should do and we do the bad things we shouldn't do because we're already sinners. Theologically speaking, we understand that because a result of Adam and Eve's sin, that's the generational curse, if you will, that was handed down through all of the continuing generations. So the minute you and I were even breathing our first air, we were already living out the condition in which we are cloaked in. And that is the nature of sin. And Jesus is saying to the crowd here, because you are sinners, you are enslaved to this sin. It's almost like we have no other choice. The sin that Jesus is talking about and the sin that is in the nature of who we are brings with it this guilt. It's like a, a, a blinking light on our dashboard that says something's wrong here. And we feel it. We, we experience the downfall of it. We, we pay the price in our relationships or in our finances or in our health. And we start to see this, the, the light gets, starts blinking stronger and stronger. And no matter how much black masking tape we put on the dashboard, it still shines through because something's drastically wrong. This is the condition of humanity. And this guilt is a, is one of condemnation. We know things aren't right. No matter how sophisticated we get or how how um, uh, uh, helpful or good-natured we seem, there's something that follows us like a weight of burden. And it's this knowing judgment. I can't get away from with this for long. So sin traps us and enslaves us because of its guilt, but it also carries with it a power. It's this cyclical trap that we live in. It has this hold on us. And we're unable to escape from it all by ourselves. We try hard, don't we? We say, Monday's going to be a new day. Or next year, I'm going to do it this way. Or I've got this opportunity with this new person in my life. And I'm not going to make the mistakes of the past. And we find ourselves in repetitive mode. We just keep tripping over the same things. We're unable to escape this pattern of sin because of its powerful hold. On our lives, apart from some rescue bigger or stronger than our own self will, we will be enslaved to it forever. We see this in the reaction of the Jews, those that believed Jesus. They respond with their national pride. They say, hey, we're Jews. We're children of Abraham. You can't pin this on us. We're not enslaved to anybody, which is like a really quick stage or step into the next stage, which is flat out denial of the facts. They've forgotten, it seems, about the slavery in Egypt. They just got done celebrating in our text, right? How the Lord led them out faithfully with a light in the sky and with water from the rock and food for their bellies and everything. What were they escaping from? Slavery. Assyria, same problem, Babylon. And they're currently listening to Jesus and interacting with him under a Roman occupation. As they're talking, there's probably soldiers going around. They're not in charge. Denial is extremely strong because of the enslavement of sin. We don't want to face the facts. We don't want to admit that it has a hold on us. What do we always say? I can quit anytime I want to, right? John Calvin said, The greater the mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically does he extol free will. I can stop anytime I want. It doesn't really have a hold on me. It really isn't owning me. I own it. Sin has an incredible power on us in our nature. We're doing things a little bit differently this morning. We're leading our church through some corporate prayer time and some worship time. And it was important for us to do it at this stage of the text because it's it's such a powerful example of how you and I can so easily be like the Jewish audience of Jesus' day, who doesn't really think the message is for them. There's so many things he's doing they appreciate. There's things that they can relate to. There's things that they're excited about that Jesus brings. But when he says, if you abide in me, I will make you free, they're like, who do you think you're talking to? We're Americans. We're top of the food chain. I can stop this sin anytime I want to. Or sometimes we react by saying, please don't bring this up. I don't want to look at the negative aspects of my life. You just acknowledging it makes me fearful that I'm going to be enslaved to this forever. We reject the hope that comes from Jesus, the freedom that can be found in him. For all of those reasons. And I think it's important for us as a body to take some time to pray through those things. Let's pray for light to illumine our hearts so that we see where we're, where we're prone to denial. Where we see where we're prone to refusal of Jesus' grace in our life. That we can offer before him the sins that, that rule and enslave us. And then as we move into the second part of our service, we're going to be able to celebrate the freedom that he's promising those that abide in him. And we'll be praising him for the work on the cross as we just had Mary Ann pray in that song, Mercy Tree, that this isn't just to bring us into doom and gloom and say we're sunk and we're done. This is moving us towards praise because he's the only one with the answer. He's the only one that was able to smash the power of sin in our hearts and in the world. So let's take some time to pray together, and let's prepare our hearts for more of what the Lord would want to do for us this morning. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for bringing these people together. I want to thank you, Lord, for their willingness to come before you and worship whatever form and whatever manner or style that brings, Lord. We are here to hear your voice. We are here to extol your praise. We are here to lift up your... Your greatness and your goodness. Lord, many of us, most of us can attest to how personal your greatness is and how, how close you've been to us while we've felt the weight of condemnation, while we've carried the weight of the burden that our sin has caused in our own life, yes, the sins of others, yes, the the heaviness that's in our society in our world, because we live in a sinful generation, but not just from an external standpoint, Lord, but that which we bring upon ourselves, Lord, lead us into a confession of our own sinfulness that keeps us from being close to you. or or for some that don't have your forgiveness in their life, that haven't surrendered to it, Lord, that would keep us from a relationship with you and the forgiveness that's made available. Lord, continually bring your light into our hearts. May we always be willing to take inventory. We hold everybody else accountable for what they do and what they say. How they aid and support us or how they hinder us and offend us, Lord. It's it's amazing how quick we are to take inventory of other people's hearts. And yet we never slow down, it would seem, and ask you to do the same in us. So, Lord, may this be beneficial time for many of us to come before you and just ask you to bring to the surface the things that we've been hanging on to, the things that have been weighing us down like a burden, the things that have been causing this feeling of dread and judgment over us, even when so many other parts of our life could be going okay. You came to save every part of us, Lord. You came to rescue every chamber of our metaphorical hearts. And so, Lord, we thank you for your mercy this morning. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you, Lord, for sending your son to do what only he could do to pay the price for us so that we could even be heard by you this morning. Continue to move in your people, Lord. May you draw us closer to one another. Give us unity of the spirit of the spirit and the fellowship of peace because we are quick to confess our own faults and flaws and uphold the goodness in others and pray for their protection. Do great things in our church in the midst this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Some of you may have kind of sniffed out who I was talking about in the first part of our story together, who John is. This man came to be known as John Newton. Unfortunately, though, John's story doesn't just stop there. This new life stuff was hard, especially when the old life is all one has ever known. After all, the slave trade was an occupation that met the conditions of a secure and respectable life, wasn't it? At this point, John did not recognize the contradiction between his new faith and his vocation. He served as first mate on one slave ship and then as captain on three more. Naturally, he often slipped into his old habits. Mornings were spent studying the Bible and praying because of his new freedom in Christ. And evenings were spent cracking the whip on the backs of those he imprisoned. He admitted that he was a ruthless businessman and was cruel to the Africans he traded. Slave revolts on board the ship were frequent. So John mounted guns and muskets on the decks aimed at the slaves' quarters. Slaves were beaten and tortured to keep them quiet. And all of this was after he had become a Christian. Eventually, John grew weary of The struggle, so, so weary. The only way out, he realized, was to depend on the grace of Christ and the power of the Spirit to sustain him. Eventually, John Newton retired from the slave trade. I would say he quit the slave trade. He quit it young. Dependent on the grace of Christ and the power of the Spirit, he decided he wanted to become ordained as a pastor, but the Church of England would not permit him because he didn't have a university education. Nevertheless, John was invited to serve as a pastor when he was 39 years old, and actually proved to be an effective spiritual leader. During his years as a pastor, Newton's warm personality and excellent preaching endeared him to many friends. He used his influence to unite the church. John Wesley marveled at Newton's ability to transcend divisions and broker disputes. Could this really be the same man as that which was the captain of slave ships? John Newton came to deeply regret his involvement in the slave trade. In 1787, Newton wrote a tract called Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, which graphically described the horrors of the slave trade and his personal role in it. He influenced many people, including William Wilberforce, who would spend the rest of his life working towards the abolition of slavery. Later, Wilberforce challenged Newton to speak publicly against slavery, the very occupation to which Newton had given most of his life. Newton accepted the challenge and became a major voice in the eventual abolition of slavery in England. John Newton is the one that gave us the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, But now I see amazing grace. The only possible answer to a life like John Newton. The only possible answer to a life like yours and mine. As his life faded, John Newton is known to have said to a friend, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Because of his new life in Jesus Christ, John Newton became a new man. On his gravestone, the following words say it all. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored To destroy. Remember I said that in Jesus audience the phrase they believed Jesus was incredibly important for us to anchor our thoughts around. John Newton determined there was a difference between just believing Jesus and believing in Jesus. We've seen that uh, distinction in the crowds that Jesus is talking to in the last several chapters. There were those that were following him earnestly, and there were those who were following him disingenuously, but still interested, but still fascinated, but not enough that would change who they were, the conduct in which they live, or the freedom in which they would walk in. John Newton could say the same thing at the same time that I was studying these scriptures and thinking I was developing my life after the truth of his word. I would go off and do something that I would later look back on and say, how did I participate in the horror that was slavery? Jesus told his audience, those that just, just simply believed in him, those that hadn't turned the corner into something more. He said, if you abide in my word. If you remain, if you continue, if you keep pace, if you stay close to, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He had to distinguish. It's not enough just to think I'm okay. It's not enough to be fascinated with with what you think are my tricks. It's not okay to be impressed with my answers the way I turn the authorities on their heels. It has to be something more than that. It has to be something personal and it has to look like remaining. It has to look like continuing. It has to look like abiding. That's how you will know. And I will know that you are truly my disciples. And what's the promise in verse 32? You will know the truth and that truth is what will set you free. So much of the Christian life can be so simplified. I love John Newton's answer. He said, I remember two things. I'm a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior. Wouldn't that be an amazing motto for any of us to remember and to live by? It comes down so purely to just, we need to know who Jesus is. We need to know who God is. We need to know the truth about Christ. We need to exercise the brain that he's given us to draw from that and to draw into a deeper knowledge of who he is. But that knowledge needs to be married to practice. That it sets our motion uh, forward and we are actually doing with that which we claim to believe. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't mince any words. He doesn't make it sound like anything less than faithfulness and endurance. We can study, we can know things. Our world is really tripped up on knowledge right now. We we say that the answer to all of our problems is more education, but then we get more education and we still continue to expose the, the sinfulness of our hearts or we still continue to expose the enslavement and the power that sin has on us. Education by itself doesn't save the day. But we are to educate ourselves because he gave us the truth of who he is but it has to look like obedience. I've often used this kind of silly little illustration. I apologize for those of you that have been around for years and have probably heard this way too many times. But when I think about the restrictive nature of obedience and how there's something in our flesh that recoils and says, but that doesn't sound like freedom. I always imagine A train barreling down the track, one that I can personify. This train is looking out over the prairies and the fields. It's making a run out into the Midwest and it can see the the, where the deer and antelope play and all that sort of stuff. And the train is like, man, every day is the same for me. I'm locked in tight on this track. We barrel down. We get a cruising speed going. I see the same people getting on and off the train that are feeding me with the same old boring coal and we're keeping the choo-choo running. I'm carrying the same old cargo and I'm sick of it. That looks like freedom. You see how those little fellows are leaping out there and they're sipping the water and they're chewing on the grass and they look like they're having fun and playing. One of these days, I'm going to experience that kind of freedom. One of these days I'm going to live my best life and no one's going to stop me, the train says. Till one day he's had enough. He sees that perfect scene, the one he always sees, and he decides I'm jumping track. I'm going to stick my lips, if I even have them as a train, in that pond and they're going to accept me as their own. Within seconds of derailing, we all know what the train goes through. Pile up happens, wreckage and carnage and all of these things. And almost immediately, the reality of what has just happened floods into the train's little mind. And he starts to make a couple of observations. The train says, first of all, this doesn't feel like anything I imagined. I've waken, I've awakened to the reality that what this feels like is pain and misery and hopelessness. I thought this would be everything I wanted. And then the other thought, very closely related to it, that the train uh, uh, ponders is, I wasn't created to run through the fields and the dirt. My wheels dug in really quick. The weight of what I'm carrying buried us in the dirt. They have light little legs and they have little ears that can hear everything. And as the train's taking all the reality of this in, how it's not playing out at all like he imagined it would, that his newfound freedom is nothing but drudgery and slavery. He starts to realize what the other animals did as he came crashing down. And They scattered and they fleed. They took right off because you know how deer can be if they hear one little sound. And he starts to realize it's not just freedom for them out there either. They're always looking for predators. Every little sound they hear they're taking off. What I think looks like rest and relaxation is just them trying to find a little safety just to nourish themselves a little bit before they're under attack again. Perhaps it could be that my greatest sense of freedom, that my quote unquote best life was back on that track even though it had those tight restrictions, it was predictable. I knew where I was going. As soon as I got hungry, they got another shovel full and fed me with more coal. Man, I missed the taste of coal. It was amazing. I, I I missed that familiar weight of having something I'm pulling behind me. And we just know this is what we do, right? We imagine a freedom beyond our restriction and we engage in it. And what does it do? It latches its shackles on us. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, if you truly become a follower of me, ah, it feels like restriction. It feels like you're going to be the boss. It feels like you're going to be my Lord, my master. That feels like restriction, our world says, and we say it too. Jesus says, but if you do that, you will know the truth. And that's the only freedom you'll ever find. You'll start to realize the power that I have that can defeat the sin that you carry. You'll start to encounter the forgiveness that I've offered as the only holy one that's carried your sin. And I've released you of the sentence. And then one day, ultimately, for all of eternity, you will be free from a punishment from a literal hell that awaits all those who die without me. If you want to talk about real freedom, stick close. Receive my payment. Follow in my footsteps. Abide. Remain. And continue. You see, John Newton wasn't happy just being a believer of Jesus. He knew his life was empty until he became a believer in Jesus. He understood the facts about God, but he knew it needed to go one step further and start to affirm those facts to be true. And then lastly, he needed to put his faith in action and trust the Lord by personally applying or appropriating in the best sense of the word, other than the way it's used today, appropriating Jesus Christ as the only hope for salvation. And Jesus says, if you do this, not only will the truth set you free, it will set you so free that you will change relationships in the house. In verse 35, he says the slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son does. So if the son sets you free, you will become a family member. The father will adopt you. And even the, the best treated slaves know the difference between somebody who's just being treated kindly on the job versus the privileges and the protection that come with being a child of the, of the slave master or the slave owner. And Jesus says, you have lived under a false freedom because you think just cause I'm in the house, I have all the privileges and I know the father and he's been saying to them you don't even know the father. You're not even adopted by him. The offer is being made to us, and Hughes puts it this way. He says, the freest being in all the universe pumps freedom into our lives that he describes as free indeed. Freedom to rise above our sins, freedom to live a holy life, freedom that we never had before. The freedom to choose the right, the freedom to choose the best, the freedom to keep on growing, the freedom to reach our potential. That is to be free indeed, and it comes from abiding in the word of God, from knowing and doing God's word. We've been singing and praising about the freedom that's been given to us. Let's take some time to praise the Lord, to thank him for that freedom, to thank him that, that all we have to do, I say kind of in, in quotes here, all we have to do is surrender and receive. That in faith, we just start following. He leads and we say, let me catch up. Let me keep up. And that's what he calls us to. Before I pray, and as the music is playing a little bit, I think we're going to just take some time and pray in the seats that we're in. And, And pray prayers of praise. Say that three times fast while you're doing it. Praise Him. We have the opportunity to come before the Lord in relative peace and silence and just say, Lord, thank you. You made it so hard on yourself so it could be so easy for us. And who am I to deny the gift of the freedom that you've given us. All you said is keep up, follow, come after me. Let's pray. God I thank you for the rescue that you've provided before knowing you before being encountered by your grace we were in a cyclical pattern of just being in chains unable to get out of our own way unable to make restitution for the wrongs that we've done but then your love broke through called us to no longer be slaves to sin but to be sons of the Most High God to be daughters of the King what God does this all other gods demand a level of determination and a level of sacrifice and a level of effort that never scratches the surface of bringing peace to its followers Only you, God, Lord Most High, came to us, sent us Jesus to rescue us from the stronghold that we were enslaved to. What freedom we've been given. Lord, we are desperate for your nudge and for your faith, Lord, to infuse our lives because we so often want to rest in knowing about you. But Lord, we need to know you. We need to know what you're saying, where you're going. Give us, Lord, the endurance. Give us, Lord, your ability to keep up. You took your determination all the way to a crucifying death. And yet it's so difficult, Father, for us to even get off the couch sometimes. Sometimes. For us to even make it in on a Sunday morning or for us to go somewhere where we know there's a need because we're busy or we're tired or we're broke. That's why we need you. We're too fickle to do it on our own. Thank you, Lord, for revealing your truth. Thank you for giving us you, making you knowable through the word that we've been given Lord collectively today we come together as a body in Christ and having confessed our sin and having thanked you for our freedom Lord we espouse our beliefs and we anchor ourselves in truth God we believe in God our father we believe in Christ the son we believe in the Holy Spirit our God is three in one we believe in the resurrection that he will rise again for we believe in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you please?